This is the RSM Orthopedic Section Podcast. We feature global experts and key opinion leaders discussing innovation, progress, and current practice within their subspecialties. My name is Akib Khan, and I'm an orthopedic registrar on the Section Council, and I'll be your host on this podcast. Welcome. I'm joined by Mr. Matthew Wilson, who is a consultant orthopedic surgeon with a specialist interest in hip reconstructive surgery. He has worked in the world-renowned Exeter Hip Unit since 2010. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Akib. It's a pleasure to talk to you. You've delivered a very engaging talk focused on spinal pelvic mobility, and I wanted to delve into the importance of the relationship between the hip joint and the spine. Um, and the first question I really have for you is, why do well-implanted total hip replacements dislocate? Well, that's a, that's a great question. I think it's the, it's the golden question, and I think uh, the one to which every hip surgeon would like the answer. And I think typically, unfortunately, it's not straightforward. Um, there are multiple factors that, that come into play. And I suppose the best way to answer it is really with the exam answer, uh, breaking it down methodically into surgeon factors, patient factors and implant factors. I think the dislocation is always one of those things that surgeons take very personally. They feel it's, it's, it's their decision to do the operation. It's something they've done wrong, perhaps, something they've not warned the, surgeon, the patient about or some implant choice that they've made. But in terms of surgeon factors, things that we can change as surgeons, we talk about uh, tissue approaches. Um, and there's lots of debate at the moment about uh, anterior approach versus posterior approach versus lateral approach. Um, but I think also the main thing really is in terms of the surgeon reliably and accurately positioning the components to recreate the biomechanics and allow their hip to move through a, a normal range of motion. I think patient factors, things like neurological abnormalities and movement disorders that can make the hip more at risk certainly come into play. Um, hypermobility may be a risk factor, but I've done plenty of hip replacements on ballet dancers who have gone back to work and got their hips into an extreme positions without dislocating. But I think that's more down to their muscle control and their, their this concept of spinal pelvic mobility and their, their, their ability to place their hip in a safe position. Implant factors come down often to head size. People talk about that. Dual mobility is a big concept in hip replacement surgery at the moment, but actually probably offset is is uh, plays a, a larger role to play than, than head size in terms of dislocation risk. Um, and that's how far the femur is away from the, the acetabulum, if you like. Um, I think uh, the position of implants is, is key. Um, and we, we typically focus on socket position. Um, but obviously, I think we need to take into account the, the other side of the equation. It, it is, after all, a total hip replacement. And uh, we need to consider the femoral components as well as the relationship of those two together during the full range of motion. So I think all, the reason they dislocate really is, is somewhere uh, within all those points. Thank you very much. That was very clear. So it's multifactorial and there's a lot that we need to consider. What I really liked during your talk was the different key terms that you, you were using and how you explained them. And I was hoping you might be able to go over some of the key terms in spine and pelvis that we need to appreciate. Things like stuck standing and, and sitting very, very good explanations. Would you mind covering that for us, please? No, sure. I think it's probably worthwhile just explaining the relationship between the spine and the pelvis 
uh, and the acetabulum when uh, during normal movement. So, so when someone stood, uh, typically speaking, there is a lumbar lordosis. So the lumbar spine is sort of concave, curved inwards, and the effect of that, because the pelvis is attached to it, is obviously to uh, roll the pelvis forwards. Uh, we would call that anterior tilting of the pelvis, and what that does basically is points uh, the acetabulum downwards. So that when we're stood on our legs, the acetabulum are pointing downwards, supporting the femoral heads. And typically, as we move from a stand to a sit position, that curve, that lumbar lordosis straightens out. So we get a loss of the lumbar lordosis. And again, because the pelvis is attached to the uh, bottom of the spine, as the lumbar lordosis flattens off, the pelvis rolls backwards or, as we call it, posteriorly rotates. And the effect of that is to point the socket slightly more forwards so that they, the head of the femur, as the femurs come up into a sitting position, are still contained within the, ac within the acetabulum. And uh, this concept of um, the spine and the pelvis working together, there's lots of terms around that. And I think they become quite confused um, for a variety of reasons, partly, I think, because of the rapidity of rise of this discussion of this topic, spinal pelvic, in, in the world of publications and uh, academic meetings without really time for consensus to form. Uh, and I think the other reason is it's two worlds coming together. So it's the hip world and the spine world coming together. And we've never really sort of communicated before, and we've certainly never spoken the same language. So there's certainly a, an amount of crossover. I think in terms of the, uh, as a hip surgeon, what we're really interested in is the, is the position that the pelvis is in. And obviously, as you've heard, that's dependent on what's going on in the lumbar spine. But when we're measuring uh, the pelvic uh, motion, there's probably two terms that are commonly used. One is the pelvic tilt and the other is sacral slope. And these can typically be measured on a, on a, a lateral x-ray of the pelvis. Um, uh, you, the pelvic tilt is a, a plane, essentially an anterior pelvic plane. And so if you imagine a, a plane in the coronal um, uh, a plane from the if you join up the two anterior superior iliac spines and the pubic tubercle, that is your, or your pelvic tilt plane. And the anatomic position is with those all in line. So basically straight up and down. Most people um, in supine standing and sitting are slightly tilted or rolled backwards or forwards. So you have an anterior pelvic tilt or a posterior pelvic tilt. The other term that I used is the sacral slope. And that again is measured on a lateral x-ray of the pelvis where you can see um, the, uh, the, the top of the sacrum, the end plate of the sacrum. And it's the angle that the end plate of the sacrum makes with a horizontal line. And those two measurements, it doesn't really matter which you use because they're all within the bony pelvis, they're surrogates for one another. So the, the, whilst the angle may be different, the delta, the amount they change during sit-stand maneuvers is the same. And I think probably for hip surgeons, those are the two key things. Um, there's various other uh, lumbar spine uh, parameters that pelvic that spinal surgeons sorry, will take into account. Um, and when they're considering spinal surgery, spinal fusions, they will try to balance the spine up sagittally and recreate that lumbar lordosis. I think uh, the other terms that we need to consider are the terms on the acetabulum, so the, the position of the, 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 where the acetabulum points. And we have two terms really. We have the um, inclination of the uh, of the acetabulum, and that's the how much it's tilted up in the uh, coronal plane. 
uh, and the version, which is how much it's tilted forwards or pointing forwards or backwards, measured in the sagittal plane. So that's that's inclination and acetabular version. It's those two figures that that we talk about in terms of acetabular component positioning. You mentioned stuck standing and stuck sitting, and those are sort of two of the extremes of positions that a stiff spine might cause. So as I said, when someone is stood, typically speaking, the lumbar spine has a lordosis, and that is a standing position. And when someone has a stuck standing uh, lumbar spine, uh, then their, their lumbar spine is basically fixed in that lordotic position. And the problem that happens is that when someone goes to sit, they don't have that ability to compensate. They don't have that ability for their lumbar spine to flatten and point the uh, acetabulum, if you like, forwards, protecting the hip. And the risk there is that as they sit down, the acetabulum still stay pointing inferiorly. And therefore, as the hip comes up into flexion, it risks impinging at the front of the socket, which has the potential effect of levering the hip out of joint and causing a posterior dislocation. The opposite of that would be a stuck uh, sitting spine. So where, as, you, as I said earlier, when you sit, your lumbar spine flattens off. It loses that lordosis um, so that your pelvis is rolled backwards and your sockets point forwards. The trouble is that if you have a stuck sitting uh, lumbar spine then your lumbar spine is stuck in that flattened position which is fine when you're sitting down but as you go to stand where you normally would uh, develop a lumbar lordosis and point your sockets down you can no longer do that so effectively your your sockets really stay pointing forwards and the risk is there as the legs come into extension the hip comes into extension is that it impinges at the back of the acetabulum and risks levering out the front so I think those are the two. Uh, those are the terms I think that I would I would uh, take into account when considering this this whole subject. Thank you very much. That was a very clear explanation. Now there's so much that we need to think about then, and really, should we be paying any attention to the forty twenty safe zone? Yeah, so I think it's it's worth explaining what we mean by 40-20. And, and this is, as I said earlier, these, these angles of inclination and, and acetabular version. And the 40 would refer to the inclination, uh, how much it's tilted in the coronal plane. And the 20 is how much it's, it's pointing forwards. It's, so it's 20 degrees of antiversion that's in the, in the sagittal plane. And that's been talked about as being a sort of a rough position of your ideal acetabular component. And that was proposed uh, by a, a chap called Lewinick. Um, who published a paper many years ago. It's actually, I believe it's the most widely quoted orthopedic paper in the literature. And he quoted it, that was a, a range, an ideal position, and termed that the safe zone. And it was actually 40 degrees plus or minus 10 of inclination and 15 degrees um, of antiversion plus or minus uh, 10 degrees. And uh, he called this the safe zone and said that if you put your acetabular component in this position, then you would lower your risk of dislocation. But in all honesty, it wasn't a great paper. And it's been, it's been criticised since. Just to sort of summarise it, really, he only looked at 300 patients and only had in that group nine dislocations, so a dislocation rate of 3%. And he only reviewed about a third of the x-rays for those that didn't dislocate and looked at their socket position. He had five different surgeons doing the uh, operations, some did soft tissue repairs, some didn't. And one of the surgeons did 190 of the 300 hips and only had one dislocation. Uh, 
So I, I would argue that if that paper got published today or got submitted today for publication, it probably wouldn't get easily accepted. And actually, there have been many uh, papers published since that have sort of discredited this idea of a, of a safe zone. The Mayo Clinic, Matt Abdel's paper, probably is the, 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 the one of the best and shows that actually when they looked at their patients, uh, their series of dislocations, actually 58% of the patients that dislocated had a hip within the safe zone. And this really goes back to this being a multifactorial problem. So I think there is a, probably a safe zone, but I think it certainly varies between individuals and it varies between activities. It probably changes during the course of that person's life as well. So I don't think we should ignore the concept of a safe zone, but I don't think it's as simple as saying it's 40 degrees and 20 degrees for everyone. We need to much more consider a, a personalised uh, uh, component positioning based on an individual. Thank you very much. Now, you've kind of touched on this um, a little bit, which is whether or not having a stiff back does matter in terms of total hip replacement outcomes. And I just wanted to follow on and really ask you, are you saying that in a clinical hip exam, you must always start the lumbar spine? I think, I think that's important. I think there's good evidence that a stiff spine does increase your risk of dislocations. There's, there's meta-analysis from Bristol that's shown a, a two times rate of dislocation for, for people that have had um, uh, previous spinal fusions. And a study from HSS has shown that, that, that the, more, the stiffer your spine, the more levels you have fused, the greater your risks of dislocation. So I think it's beholden upon us to, to take a good history um, uh, and a good examination of patients. And that should definitely, if you're a hip surgeon, include an assessment of their lumbar spine. So getting your patients, what's asking them if they've had any lumbar spine surgery or if they have any uh, lumbar spine problems is key. Uh, I think getting them to sit and stand and looking at that lordosis and seeing whether they have any element of either stuck sitting or stuck standing. Um, I think is essential for everyone. And if in doubt, then I think you should go on and, and image those patients for sure. Brilliant. And on the um, topic of imaging, you mentioned performing spinal pelvic x-rays on, on patients. Do you perform that for all of your patients? And is that with them standing up or sitting down? What do you do? So we don't presently. We would sort of select patients um, because it's obviously it's an additional dose of radiation. Um, and, and we're probably trying to reduce a low complication rate um, by a sort of fairly small amount. So it's, it's marginal gain. So we don't x-ray everyone um, at present. It's a, it's a lateral x-ray, uh, standing and uh, sitting and certainly of the uh, pelvis, but really the lumbar spine as well. So you can measure your lumbar spine motion. motion. Uh, just a lateral x-ray is fine. Um, there is some evidence, there's some uh, papers currently in uh, print at the moment uh, from America that do suggest there is some cost effectiveness to imaging everyone. And that's really based on uh, decision making at the time of uh, listing of surgery. So, for example, changing either your approach uh, or your implant choice uh, to, with the aim of reducing dislocation. And if you can do that and reduce the risks of revision and therefore the costs of revision, actually, the additional cost of imaging everyone beforehand probably becomes cost effective after about five years. So it's certainly something we're looking at. Uh, clearly, there's a resource issue in terms of imaging if you start imaging everyone. But I think there's increasing evidence that we we can't ignore this, this issue. We have to really sort of address it head on. Thank you very much. And last question, what new technologies do you think will help us improve our outcomes in the future? 
I think there's lots of exciting developments at the moment. Uh, I think we talked about imaging just now of your spine and resources. I think there are some low-dose imaging machines uh, such as EOS, which give you biplane images at very low doses very quickly and can have a high throughput of patients. I think installing one of those machines or similar into hospitals can help uh, with imaging everyone and, and start to get an assessment of lumbar spine motion. I think uh, CT scans and computer um, uh, modeling of impingement ranges of motion, um, inputting your spinal pelvic, um, uh, your pelvic um, rotation, uh, I think is really interesting. I think there's lots of um, work going on that at the moment with various uh, navigation systems and robotics are, are increasingly uh, looking at this. Uh, I think once we can start to work out where our impingement zones are and perhaps refine our cup position for an individual, then that's all well and good having an idea of where it should be. But what we need to be able to do is to be able to implant it accurately. And that's where robotics come in. And uh, robotics have been shown to be much more accurate than the uh, average uh, surgeon in terms of component position, much more reliable. So I think there's two streams to it. I think one is working out where the bits need to be. And that's the subject of ongoing debate. Um, but in order to inform that, we really need to, to image everyone so we can work out where best to place it for an individual. Um, and then there's the concept of being able to put it where we've decided is the ideal place and, and that place. And that's where I think robotics is uh, has a, a definite role to play uh, and is here to stay for sure. Um, it's a pretty exciting technology. It's developing fairly rapidly. And I think you will see more and more discussion about spinal pelvic motion, CT motion analysis and robotics, uh, both in publications and at academic meetings for many years to come. That was really great. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and thank you for coming onto the podcast. That's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me.